understand I'm not here to change you per se. I just want to change your thinking process when it comes to communicating one person to another. To give you some idea of what we mean when we talk about tactical empathy. When we talk about the importance of subordinating yourself to the other side, when we talk about the importance of deferring to the other side, when we talk about the importance of demonstrating to the other side that you understand what their worldview is. If you do not understand my worldview, you do not understand me. If you do not understand me, forget about meaningful dialogue. It's not going to take place. I'm going to expose you to a handful of skills, actionable, practical. You can go out tonight and start to use these skills. And you will see what I'm talking about. I don't want you to take what I say at face value. You go out and road test this stuff yourself. Don't believe me. Go out and test it yourself. Hostage negotiators in the United States of America have a success rate of over 94%. That is to say that 94% of the time that we get called out to one of these events, we're able to influence the person to surrender. Now, I would ask that you compare and contrast that to your success rate at influencing other people into doing what you need them to do. The best of you in this room are probably around 35-40%. I was surprised to learn that in some circles, 1% or less was considered successful. Anybody know who uh, Jordan Belfort is? Who is he? I see your head shaking. Who is he? Wolf of Wall Street. In his book, The Way of the Wolf, he would give his people 200 leads, qualify 10, close one. Mind-numbing to me. But back to 94 versus 40. Why is there a disparity in those numbers? With hostage negotiators at 94% and you, the best of you in this room, at 40%. Is it because hostage negotiators are smarter than you? I've worked with them all over the globe. I can tell you, no, that's not the case. So what is it? The answer lies in we have a better than average appreciation of human nature, the human nature response specifically, which dictates negative emotions and negative dynamics drive decision making and drive behavior. You're going to hear me say that ad nauseum over the next hour. Negative emotions, negative dynamics drive decision making and by extension, they drive behavior. When you get your head around that, you are going to be at a distinct advantage over everybody else because people that you interact with will now become predictable. You can begin to predict what they're going to do, what they're going to say, what they're going to ask next because of your understanding of that human nature response. Remember, you don't get in life what's fair, you get what you negotiate. If you want to become a better negotiator, click the link in the description below. Now. I know you're looking at me going, what is this cop going to tell me about how to do my job? How does what he did, which was use my communication skills 
to save lives. How is that applicable to my world? I would ask that you consider this. You guys are all compliance professionals. You sell products, B2B, and you try to get people to do what? To buy, to comply. Even if you are not involved in traditional sales, you are still selling. Daniel Pink wrote the book, To Sell is Human. In that book, he said one in nine adults in the U.S. workforce are involved in traditional sales. The other eight out of nine are involved in non-sales selling, where you're spending the better part of your day trying to get people to bite off on an idea, a suggestion, a proposal, trying to move them in a certain direction. Non-sales selling. Hostage negotiators. We're the ultimate compliance professionals on the planet because we sell jail time and we get people to buy it all of the time. The skills I'm going to talk to you about today are derived from the active listening skill set, which was developed back in the 50s by a guy by the name of Carl Rogers in the area of psychotherapy, he was a doctor. We stole it for use in law enforcement in the mid-1980s, and it has seen increased use in the business world since the mid-2000s. The skills I'm going to talk to you about today impact everybody. I'm not going to argue with you as to whether or not it affects everybody, because I've seen it, I know it does. As long as you're dealing with someone with a respiratory system and a brain, the skills will impact them. The degree of impact might be different. What works relatively easy with him may not work as well with you because you guys have two different constitutions, but the impact is going to occur. It does not matter what you look like. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter your gender. I just got off of uh, a training uh, evolution rotation with a, a global company such as yours. And uh, we were doing a follow-up session where they were reporting back on successes and failures after going out into the field and executing these skills. There was a woman on the call from Germany. There was a man from Mumbai. There was another guy from, I can't remember, somewhere in China. There's a guy from the Middle East, this guy from South America, to a man and a woman, they all said they can't believe how effective it is in their environment. Which speaks volumes to its applicability globally. It's not by accident that hostage negotiators in Tokyo, in Hong Kong, in Melbourne, in Johannesburg, in Frankfurt, in London, in Toronto, LA, DC, Bogota, they're all trained in the same skill set. Why? Because it's predicated on that human nature response. The skills that I'm going to talk to you about are counterintuitive, they're awkward. If you have not read Never Split the Difference, you're going to think to yourself, this is the dumbest stuff I've ever heard in my life. 
Some of you are going to look at me and say, this guy is no better than a snake oil salesman. He was law enforcement for so many years. Now he's not law enforcement, so he's able to partake in substances that he was not able to partake in. (laughs) And that's what he does on the weekends. He dreams this stuff up and tries to push it out to the private sector. You're going to think to yourself, I can never imagine that crap coming out of my mouth. You're going to go back to a tough conversation that you had, and you're going to say to yourself, if I had used that in that conversation, fill in the blank, something bad would have happened. I would have embarrassed myself. They would have thrown me out of the room. He would have yelled at me, etc." This is tantamount to learning a new language. And for some of you, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt because it's awkward. And the awkwardness is your brain telling you there is no cognitive map yet developed for the skill that you're asking me to use. And it's making me uncomfortable. And as human beings, when we are uncomfortable, what do we want more than anything else? To get comfortable again as quickly as possible. And in this case, that would mean reverting back to old habits. But rest assured, within awkwardness comes accelerated learning because you have to focus harder. And so we'll talk about the foundational skills within the Black Swan Method. This is by no means comprehensive. This is just to get you started. Just to get you started. Charles talked about being innovative, being creative in 2023, setting yourselves apart in 2023. You want to set yourself apart? Change the way you engage the people that you engage on a regular basis. Stop thinking that it's all about you and where you want to end up. Take your goal and objective, put it on the back seat for a time. And look at the circumstances through the eyes of the person who's sitting across the table from you or on the other end of that phone. Remember, you don't get in life what's fair, you get what you negotiate. If you want to become a better negotiator, click the link in the description below. I'm here to tell you, it doesn't matter where you hail from. Likewise, it doesn't matter what the conversation is about. Mergers, acquisitions, real estate, buying a car, contract negotiations, salary negotiations, negotiating with your teenager to complete their college application. The skills work in all of those environments. These skills have been tested and proven in the highest of stakes conversations on the planet where lives are literally hanging in the balance. If they work in that environment, why would they not work in yours? And some of you may be thinking to yourself, well, yeah, but you know, lives were at stake in your conversation. I don't have lives at stake in mine. And that's true. Lives are not at stake, but livelihoods are. And I will tell you that this, those negative emotions and dynamics, the same ones that are present in a hostage taking are the same ones that are present 
in your tough conversations. It's just that the stakes are different. Now, some of you are going to say to yourself, there is no way that I would ever say that the way he said to say it. You're going to think to yourself back to your last tough conversation and say, if I had said that during that conversation, they would have yelled at me. I would have embarrassed myself. They would have called me out for doing something. They would have laughed at me, etc. At least as far as Troy and I are concerned, you're going to say to yourself that those guys are crazy. They're no longer sworn law enforcement, so they're able to partake in substances that they weren't able to partake in before, and they're sit around, sitting around their homes partaking in those substances, dreaming this stuff up. Snake oil salesmen. How could that possibly work in my environment? And a lot of that is going to be born out of the fact that these skills are counterintuitive. They fly in the face of everything that you've ever been taught before. And on top of that, they're awkward. Oh, yeah, we're going to make you feel awkward today. We're going, we're going to take you out of your comfort zone. We're going to put you in a box and make you play in that box and not let you out until we're satisfied. The silver lining to the awkwardness. Well, let's talk about where the awkwardness comes from. Where do you think the awkwardness comes from? Fear of judgment. First word I love, fear. How about you? Where do you think that awkwardness comes from? There is some self-consciousness there similar to what she said, but ultimately the awkwardness comes from the fact that your brain is telling you there is no cognitive map yet developed for the skill that you're asking me to use. And if there's no cognitive map, it makes me hurt, and we don't like to hurt. As human beings, when we are uncomfortable, what we want to do as fast as possible is to get comfortable again, and that usually results in us resorting back to old or, quote, bad habits. But the silver lining is within awkwardness comes accelerated learning because you have to focus harder. How many of you in this room are proficient, not just functional, but are proficient in a language other than your native tongue? What's the other language? How long did it take you to become proficient? You were in a total immersion program. Day one, how proficient were you? After your first 24 hours. There you go. I could not have dropped you off on a corner in Mexico City and said, have fun. Eight weeks later, I could drop you off in Mexico City and say, have fun. What we're talking about here is tantamount to learning a new language. 
24-7 for eight weeks, total immersion is what got him to a level of proficiency. Why? Because he was getting repetition, 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 repetition. Your reps for this skill set starts today. How many reps does it take to develop a new habit? Not days. Don't tell me how many days. Everybody's going to scatter. 21 days. How many repetitions does it take for you to develop a new habit? Huh? 2,000. Well, you're in luck. It takes less than that. 67 repetitions to develop a new habit. Not to be efficient, just to develop it as a new habit. And so we're going to start those repetitions here. Don't let that awkwardness be a challenge for you. Accept it. Embrace it because it's going to make you better because you have to focus harder. We're going to focus a lot on tactical empathy. That's the foundation upon which all of our stuff is built. Everything that we do is in pursuit of tactical empathy. And we'll talk about the, 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 uh, the legal definition of tactical empathy as far as we're concerned um, in a few minutes. But everything we're doing is in pursuit of the tactical empathy. I'm not here to change who you are. You guys are successful without us. We're just here to add to your toolbox, to give you some other things that enhances what you're already doing. We're not trying to change you, but for those of you who are new to us, what we are trying to change is your thought process as it pertains to communicating one person to another. And that's gonna begin with understanding what business you're in. What business are you in, really? What business are you in? You're in a negotiation business. What do you do? I'm contract Contracts manager. Okay. What business are you in? I'm retired from sales. Sales. What business are you in? Uh, real estate, sales. Real estate. What business are you in? Real estate, sales. What business? Oh, sorry about that. What business are you in? Uh, consumer package goods. In the back. What business are you in? Can I tell you that you're all, all wrong? The business that you all are in, this is, this is the change in the thought process. The business that you all are in is the trust business. That's the business that you're in. You're not getting contract signs, signed unless they trust you. You're not selling property unless they trust you. Anybody anywhere on the planet would do anything for you if two criteria are met. One, it's within their capability, and two, they trust you. We, we don't realize, we didn't realize his 94% success rate because the people didn't trust us. We took the time to demonstrate for them that we understood what the lay of the land looked like from their perspective in order to get that level of trust. The only way to get that level of trust in your world is through tactical empathy. 
And tactical empathy starts with your ability to listen. In theory, if I ask you how important listening is, everybody in this room would say, yeah, it's really important. In reality, none of us do it very well. None of us get beyond that, I get it. Listening is the cheapest and most effective concession that you can make from one human being to the other. Listening by itself is persuasive. We all instinctively know that. Yet it's so hard. How many of you in this room think that you are good listeners? Tom is a good listener. He's the only one? You think you're a good listener? All right. So even the ones that are good are underperforming. Why do you think they're underperforming by as much as 60%? Why do you think they're underperforming? Because they fail to understand the different levels to listening. What is this all about? Applying tactical empathy with success. Our job was to engage another person in a highly emotive state, de-escalate those emotions, and return them to a normal functioning level in order to influence their surrender. And we got to be pretty good at it. Our success rate, at least here in the States, is somewhere in the neighborhood of 93%. That is to say, 93% of the time that we get called out, we're able to influence the person whom we're dealing with to surrender. And I would ask that you compare and contrast that to your ability or your success rate, I should say, at influencing other people into doing what you need them to do. The best of you on this call are probably successful around 35 to 40% of the time. I, I, was, I was shocked to know that in some circles, a, a 1% conversion or success rate was considered acceptable. Those of you who are familiar with Jordan Belfort know that he is the wolf of Wall Street. And he, would, he wrote in his book, The Way of the Wolf, that he would provide his salespeople with 200 leads. He expected them to qualify 10 and close one. And that just kind of blew me away. But why the disparity? If hostage negotiators are around 93% and you're around 40%, why is there a disparity in those numbers? Is it because Marcella, Roger, Sandy, Troy, and I are smarter than everybody else? And the answer to that question is no. The answer to the question lies in our appreciation of the human nature response, which dictates a couple of things. Number one, negative emotions and dynamics drive decision-making and drive behavior. There's no two ways about it. And the other is your voice causes an emotional impact on the part of the person receiving your message. It can be large or small, it can be positive or negative, but it is nonetheless there. 
And once you understand those two concepts, once you get your head around those things, once you learn how to navigate the concept, looking through those two prisms, people become predictable. You can start to predict what they're going to say and how they're going to act. And by using these skills that have been tested and proven across the world, think about what that would mean to your business, to your life, if you were to increase your ability to influence other people by 50% or more. That's what we're pursuing over the next two months. Changing the way you think about communicating one person to another. Not a huge change, just a one degree shift in the way you think about communicating one person to another. Now, what's going to get in your way? These skills are counterintuitive. You're going to think to yourself, this is awkward. This is stupid. Um, this may have worked with you because in hostage negotiations, it's a, it's a one and done transaction where you have to be concerned about future relationships. You're going to think that all of us have retired and we're partaking in illegal substances that we couldn't partake in while we were sworn. And we just sit around smoking dope and thinking this stuff up. We're snake oil salesmen. You're going to say to yourself, I cannot imagine those words coming out of my mouth. You're going to think about the last time that you were in a difficult conversation or negotiation and what the response would have been from your counterpart if you executed any of the skills that we are going to talk about. You're going to get those, those feelings. The silver lining, um, the silver lining of the awkwardness, I should say, is that within awkwardness lies accelerated learning. You learn better when you're awkward because you have to focus. And what we're gonna be talking about over the next eight weeks is tantamount to you learning a new language. Those of you who are fluent or at least proficient in a language other than your native tongue, think about what you felt like when you started to learn. After a week of learning that language, I would not expect you to perform very well if I took you and dropped you into a community where that was the predominant language. Fast forward six months, you'd feel a little bit better. It's the same way with the black swan method. It's tantamount to learning a new language. Now, some of you are still maybe struggling. Yeah, I get it, but I still don't see how it's gonna to relate to the business world. Well, at the end of the day, regardless of your space, you guys are compliance professionals. You provide a good or a service and you try to get people to comply, i.e. to buy. Troy, Sandy, Roger, Marcella, and I are the ultimate compliance professionals on the planet because all of us sold jail time and all of us got people to buy it all of the time. And so, in the most extreme circumstances, when the motions are highest, when the stakes are the highest, 
we found that the skills work regardless of ethnicity, regardless of gender, race, creed, or color. It's not by accident that hostage negotiators in Japan, India, Africa, Middle East, North America, South America, Europe, they're all trained in the same skill set. So we know it works regardless of the circumstances. Why? Because everything that we do is based on that human nature response. So whether you're talking about mergers and acquisitions, you're talking about contract negotiations, you're talking about negotiating for a salary increase, you're talking about negotiating with your 17-year-old about getting off her tail and making a decision about what college she wants to go to. The skills work. The biggest hurdle, as I mentioned, is going to be the awkwardness. The awkwardness is going to make you uncomfortable. When you are uncomfortable, what you want to do faster than anything else is to get comfortable again. And that's going to result in you reverting back to bad habits, old habits. The way you minimize, reduce, and and eventually eliminate that awkwardness is by going out and road testing this stuff. We're going to give you various assignments over the next eight weeks where you're going to be expected to go out and road test it. Don't you don't leave any of these sessions believing this stuff works simply because we said so. You have to go out and apply it yourself. See for yourself. Once you use it and you get the desired result, it's going to be like you seeing the unicorn for the first time. You're not going to be able to wait to see it again. Repetitions, repetitions, repetitions. 64 to 67 repetitions is what it takes for you to develop a new habit. And it starts right now. The awkwardness comes from your brain telling you there is no neural pathway yet developed for the skill that you're asking me to use. How do you develop that neural pathway? The only way to do it is practice, practice, practice. We are going to intentionally make you uncomfortable. We're going to intentionally put you in a box. We're intentionally going to restrict your movement as it pertains to the execution of the skills. And we're doing it for a specific reason. We want you to get the fundamentals down first. Once you get the basics down first, Then as we move through the content, we'll allow you a little bit more leeway, a little bit more latitude to start experimenting. But initially, we're going to keep you in that box and make you work the skills just as we say it. Negotiation is a series of emotional moments. Whether you try to remove emotion from the situation or not, doesn't matter. You're dealing with a counterpart or set of counterparts that are making decisions emotionally. And so there's going to be a series of emotional moments that occur. Our job as negotiators, in addition to making them the problem solver, showing the understanding, right? We get all those things. In addition to that is we got to be able to ask ourselves, are we intimately in control of the emotions that take place at the table? When they're happy, 
Is it because we said something that made them happy or do they just happen to become happy? When they're pensive, when they're deep in thought, is it because we prompted it and now they got this emotional reaction of I got to think about it? If they're worried about fear of loss, of losing an opportunity, is it because we prompted it or did it just happen? And the reality is we want to be in control of those moments. When they feel something, we want it to be because we made them feel that way. And right, and then we, we calibrate those emotions in our favor. And so this is all about influence. And I know a lot of people struggle with what's the difference between influence and manipulation. The reality is they're essentially synonyms. The difference between the two is intent. If your intention is to manipulate and take advantage, uh, you might sneak into one of these classes, but there's a really good chance we're not going to work with you one on one and help you really reach the next level because we don't deal with narcissists. But if you want to build trust and develop an understanding that leads to that influence, you're in a different realm. And so intent is really the difference between the two. And tactical empathy is 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 how we execute this stuff. And so the other thing to always keep in mind as well is there isn't a rigid sequence. I wish that I could lay out a step-by-step, -step, here's this skill and then use this skill and then use this skill and then use that skill. And it doesn't work that way, unfortunately. And um, if you've had uh, enough exposure to the Black Swan group, what you probably found is questions that get asked, especially if they get answered by like myself, Sandy, Derek, or Chris, right? Whoever's on, on the screen, you're probably gonna get three different answers to the same question. And the reality is all three answers are right. Some of it is, what are you comfortable with? Where's your knowledge level? And then what works really well and naturally for you, right? Nine times out of 10, I'm gonna tell you to use a label. Nine times out of 10, Chris Voss is gonna tell you to use a calibrated question. How you phrase it, how you drop it in and what your tone sounds like is really where the rub is at. And so situational awareness is a big part of what fits best in the moment. My, my question is, is something that you just said a little while ago, the issues with people who are in the half category and people who are in the elf. And just thinking about you have worked with and dealt with some of the most difficult half people in the world. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I'm thinking, of, you know, part of my question yesterday was dealing with the political divide in this country. And I'm wondering if you're, for example, you're in a, you're in a, uh, in a family or in a, your neighbor is a half, but you want to find some way where you have to work together for something that is going to benefit the entire building, let's say, or the entire community. Is there any, given your experience, is it at all possible to, how do, would you try and find a way to half the half, to move, you know, they're not going to be an elf, but you can't have them totally a half. What would you do? What do you do in those situations? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, And so it's, all right, so what's your best chance of success? And 
you know, I used to use that phrase all the time, best chance of success. I learned it. I learned it from, you know, my boss, uh, one of my main mentors, Gary Nessner. He ran, ran a crisis negotiation unit when, when I first got there. And Gary used to always talk about best chance of success. And I repeated it over and over and over again. And then finally we had a kidnapping go bad and people get killed. And I was at the helm and I said to myself, all right, so I guess best chance of success by definition means you're not always going to be successful. So the first thing you got to relieve yourself of is the needing to be always be successful. You know, in baseball, the bat a thousand or percentage wise to win 100 percent of the time. That is not possible. Now, what's my best chance of success? Hostage negotiators got a 93% success rate. 93% success rate. I don't know of any other profession with that high of a percentage success rate. I don't know any salespeople. Wolf of Wall Street in his book, The Way of the Wolf, he talked about having a 3% success rate. Hostage negotiators, tactical empathy, 93% success rate which by definition means 7% of those people you are never going to get to an agreement with, no matter how much time you put in. So tactical empathy is still the answer, whether they're a neighbor, whether they're on the condo board, whether they're a family member. Expect it to take longer. Let it sink in. What we prescribe and a lot of people when you've got opposing arguments going on, a great way to interact with someone that you disagree with is to say, before I disagree with you, here's what I think your position is. You've done two things. You haven't lured them into thinking in any way, shape, or form that you don't have a counter point of view. Before I disagree, so they know that you're not in agreement. Here's what I think your position is. They're going to listen. You're going to get that sentence out. And then they're going to listen intently for where you're coming from. And that's going to start the transformation process. Now, is, is that process going to be sufficient? Even if it's 93% successful, which is a really high rate, 7% of the time it's not going to work. But it's your best chance of success. Tactical empathy is always your best chance of success. Do and let it do not look for the instantaneous transformation that you will get in in less adversarial conversations. One of our longtime students, customers, and I talk about this in the um, in my TED talk. He's in an argument with his sister, family member, family gathering. His younger sister is a primary caregiver for their ailing father, and the pressure on her is enormous. She's had too much to drink, and she starts in on him. And he said he'd seen this happen before, and he realized it was just his turn. And all he wanted to do was make her feel heard and not disagree with anything. Make her feel heard. He said it went on for an hour before she finally ran out of gas. And then she just stopped. She just ran out of gas. Did not have, did not get a that's right out of her. Did not feel the oxytocin moment at all. Just was relieved that she was no longer beating on him. 
The next day, she sends him an email that said, Yesterday I attacked you, and you showed me nothing but love. Thank you for being my big brother. Give him, give it a chance to sink in. Give it a chance to work as much as it possibly can. And realize that you've done the best that you can. And it won't always work every time. But without trying it, it won't work at all. That's the best I can give you. <laughs> I hope you, you didn't hear all the moments when I'm like, oh my God, wow. That is just truly beautiful. Truly beautiful. And, and, and you could just, I could just feel how that can, because when you focus on really caring for somebody, that is the most beautiful thing you could do. Thank you. I, I really appreciate this. Thank you so much. You're welcome. An American overseas doing something stupid. This is a sociopath that has him. The question I often get or the one that I like to throw out is, does empathy work on sociopaths? Well, this guy is a sociopath. He's got on his uniform. Sunglasses, black bandana, black T-shirt, camel pants, 45 strapped to his side, 45 caliber automatic handgun strapped to his side of his camouflage pants. He thinks this makes him look daring and dashing. He doesn't have on sunglasses because it's sunny in the south of the Philippines. It is, but he's got them on because he thinks it makes him look more photogenic. And this is the negotiator that I'm coaching. Now, we go through the negotiation for a period of months. The terrorist is not asking for ransom for the release of the American. He's asking for war damages for 500 years of oppression in the south of the Philippines, from the Spanish to the Japanese to the Americans. Now, right now you're saying like, well, this is a one reason why hostage negotiation doesn't apply to me. Because I was never in a negotiation where the other side were bringing up things from the past that had nothing to do with me, that occurred to them before I ever showed up. In my business negotiations, people don't react like that. They don't bring baggage to the table. Oh, wait a minute. That happens at every negotiation. People bring their history of experience to the table, even history I had nothing to do with. So we finally decide after four months of a stalemate that we're going to get a that's right out of the terrorist. So I coach my negotiator, today you get a that's right. And he gets a terrorist on the phone. He says, you know, you're not asking for ransom for the American. You're asking for war damages for 500 years of oppression. And he goes on at length over the injustices that occurred and the things that the other side had experienced that had nothing to do with the Americans or the American being held, but what they had experienced. And after going on at length over the other side's experience, he goes silent. He doesn't offer an argument in return. He just goes silent. And the kidnapper on the other end of the phone says, that's right. He summarizes the other side's facts, not our facts, but their facts and how they felt about the facts. And a kidnapper says, that's right. And the ransom demand goes away. It just goes away. Money is never mentioned again in the kidnapping. It takes several more twists and turns. And on Monday, Thursday, on the Thursday before Easter, the hostage walks away. The military flew down and picked him up. They held a big press conference in Manila announcing the rescue. 
we flew Schilling back, the American back to the United States. And I was back in the Philippines a couple of weeks later. I connected back up with the negotiator that I had coached. And he said, you're not going to believe who called me on the phone. I said, I don't know who called you on the phone. The sociopathic terrorist. What did he say? He said, have you been promoted yet? I don't know what it was he said to me on the phone. I was going to kill the American. You're really good at what you should do, what you do. They should promote you. This is what the demonstration of understanding gets, ladies and gentlemen, because in that moment, the person who lost everything called the person on the phone responsible for it to congratulate him and let him know that he was still willing to talk to him. Despite everything that happened, he was still willing to talk and collaborate should they talk again. Everybody that you interact with should always be willing to talk with you because your brand is empathy. Your brand is understanding. That's what That's Right does when you begin to apply this to all of your interactions. People will always be willing to talk with you. Your brand is empathy. Your best self is relayed to others through the use of empathy. I have someone on my team who used to work with another brokerage um, and she informed our team that there are brokerages out there that train their agents to be adversarial. And that's sometimes what you're dealing with as well. So when you use tactical empathy, it kind of, they don't expect it, Um, but it works with them. I would say almost more because of the fact that they're trained in this other way of negotiating. And when they're trained in that other way, they're not going to display it. But to her point, they're highly susceptible to it. They will react to it. So um, going back to what we were talking about before, Anna Maria, first of all, start talking to the listing agent as if you're an advocate for them, as if you really care about them, about their worldview, about everything that they're going through because they're trying to sell this $300,000 property at half a million because they can in this market. How, so talk, make sure that you demonstrate for them that you understand what it is that they're going through and that's what starts to separate you. That's what starts to to move you out of the pack of the other 20 offers that are there. Because I can tell you the other 19 people that they're dealing with are not talking that way. Yeah, I can see that. I guess um, when, when I was saying what's important to the seller, um, it's not just that one question, you know, I try mm-hmm. to to go into what you said. Most of them are just so quick and they don't have time, you know, for anyone. So, Marcella, would you be opposed to just kind of sharing or role modeling how uh, a conversation would go, you know, if I'm somebody's the listing agent and they just got 20 offers and most of the times they don't even pick up the phone, you know, they'll just text if they even do that. They'll just text you. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely try to get them on the phone. That's the best way to negotiate. Um, In fact, I 
like to set the expectation of the negotiation continuing over the phone, even if we go under contract with them. Um, so that that's so helpful. But an accusations audit would be, um, I'm going to sound like every other, the 30 last agents that just called you expecting that my offer is going to be the best. I, ex this is going to sound like I'm peppering you for information that you don't want to give. Um, this is going to, I'm going to sound like all I care about is my client and understanding what will win this deal. Um, I'm going to seem so inconsiderate with your time. Cause I think time's a big deal for, for agents, all of us, buyers or seller side. Mm -hmm. um, we all are dealing with when in a market like this, it feels like we're triaging cases or triaging mm -hmm. clients. And so I'm very aware of that in my accusations audit. And usually at that point, they just cut me off because they're annoyed, mm -hmm. right? Or be, because they're, they just want to hear the information, but they're giving me permission at that point to communicate information to them that they may not have even been open to hearing. Okay. And then that's when, you know, we, we discuss where I am with the offer or I ask them questions, whatever it might be. Do you usually ask them directly, you know, what is the highest offer or something in those lines? I'm usually a little less, um, I usually don't approach it with exactly what is your highest offer. Mm -hmm. I say it a different way. Um, it sounds like you have a lot of offers that your, your client's extremely happy with. Um, what do those offers not have that, that you would be, you would like to see, or your client would like to see in an offer, which is a kind of a different way of saying the same thing. And then I find that they mm -hmm. open me that way because they're not being directly asked, what is your highest offer? Um, and then they give me a lot, then it's quite, you have to be silent. Okay. Just let them talk. Cool. Yeah, I, I wouldn't mind jumping in here if you on this with uh, a recent situation that worked with the uh, QT plus one I kind of stumbled into. Would that be, yes, a, would it be a problem to do that? So um, I showed up for a uh, showing uh, with my buyers and the listing agent was there. She was happening to have an open house going. And it, I could have been irritated about that. But I thought, ah, this is a great opportunity to talk to her. So while I was waiting for my clients, um, I, I was talking to her. I had happened to see her. She had happened to present an offer on one of my other properties and lost it. So I spent a lot of time empathizing with her about that and how good an offer it was. And I really you know, was disappointed that we weren't able to work together. And then I worked in. I said, it seems like you have a lot of... Um, buyer activity on this home. Oh, excuse me, That's, pardon me. And uh, she responded, oh yes, yes, um, we've received an offer on it. And I said, you've received an offer? Um, and she said, yeah, you know, but the clients, they wanna make a decision tonight. And then I said, would it be unreasonable for me to bring you a full price offer? And she said, no, it would need to be over asking. And I said, over asking? And she said, yeah, just a little over asking. If, <laughs> and then I said, okay. And I said, would it, uh, would it be a problem if we waived 
the inspection contingencies and just went straight to a contract because uh, it's a new construction, newer construction. Um, would that be a problem? She said, no, that'd be very favorable. So I was able to get these terms and we ended up getting the, getting the, the home for the client. That's awesome. How much is just a little bit over? What does that mean? Uh, we were, let's see, we went about 15,000 over, okay. uh, but in this market, we've been, I mean, yeah, it's been much more than that, much more than that. I know. But what we did is we, we put up 20,000 in non-refundable due diligence and waived the inspection period. So, um, we were, you know, to do that, you know, we're, we're in. But we were we were confident, and that's what's kind of taking what's winning. That's kind of, in our market the winning formula right now is waiving due diligence and giving them as much money as you can up front. Right, right, and and that that goes to support that notion that price is only one term. Right, you know, there are many other there there are other terms that can be that are concessionable that can make a deal more palatable, um, but. Price is probably the most emotional word in the negotiation lexicon because yeah. it, it it drives people crazy on the positive and the negative side. It it, it it's so seductive and yet so um, so tied to identity that it becomes deal breakers more often than not. Yeah. But I think the uh, the big takeaway for me was don't be irritated if the listing agent's there at an open house. <laughs> you know, that's a great opportunity to to get some information to empathize with them and and pull that out. And she told me more than she should have, quite frankly, because my my folks would have gone higher, um, but um, she let me know that we could go in lower. All right, so let's let's I'm going to pull that apart just a little bit. First, my first question, because I'm unwashed, um, the problem with the listing agent being at the open house is what? Um, just, you know, you, when you normally when you show up for um, a showing in our market, you want to um, be able to try on the house and have them walk around and have a conversation without uh, that information with the uh, being shared, being uh overheard by the listing agent gotcha so you know i had an appointment at a designated time and there were other people there okay gotcha uh, but i saw that as an opportunity now to be able to get information face to face from the from the listing agent which i normally wouldn't have perfect got irritated that they were there people were there you had that time uh blocked out for you and your client and so it's understandable there was a certain level of irritation Many people would let that irritation carry the day and affect their behavior, their attitude in a, in a negative in a negative fashion. You chose it to take it not as an ordeal, but as an adventure and engage the listing agent. And because, and, and it wasn't only because um, of this, but um, because you decided to engage them from their perspective, what did she do for you? She provided you with information that you, that she probably shouldn't have. Right. Because you made, um, it's a woman, 
I guess you made her feel yep. so good by just taking the time to listen to her perspective that she felt obligated. This is, this is the power in tactical empathy. It's the power in our stuff. Tactical empathy is the foundation upon which the black swan method is built. And this is the, this is a, 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 um, a great example of the power of tactical empathy. It encourages reciprocity. Subconsciously, she now feels obligated to share with you because of the fact that you took care of her defenses. Yeah, and also also the fact that we spent probably five to ten minutes talking about the deal she lost on one of my listings and how bad I felt for her for that. Mm. So that really opened up the empathy door. Yeah. So I tell you guys always be conscious, be cautious of, of common ground, but, but understand that if there is common ground, as there was in this case, um, the black swan method makes common ground that much stronger. Common ground by itself is a pretty weak tactic. I'm not telling you that you can't make deals using common ground. You just don't make as many as you should if that's all you're relying on. And so the fact that you guys had it, were in a transaction together that fell through and, and the pain that you felt for her because of it, huge. Huge. What's the, what's the uh, black swan um, way of doing common ground or what's the distinction? In the black swan method of coming. All right. So um, there is no black swan equivalent to common ground. Common ground is black or white. It either is or it isn't. You either have it or you don't. Our problem with common ground is for some people, myself included, I, on some level internally, take offense to common ground because there's a little there's a little piece of my brain that is telling me that you are using common ground with me as a tool expecting me to acquiesce yeah i i'm, so, I'm like you i have a little bit of that in me. yeah i if if i say yeah i had a great weekend this weekend and went to a soccer tournament and watched my daughter play soccer for two straight days they won the championship and then the next words out of your mouth your daughter plays soccer I know how to play soccer. Let's make a deal. You've already made an yeah. assumption that I'm that I'm going to do what you need me to do. Uh, the example that I like to use all the time is when I was back in the, in the police days and I was on the road and I see a violation. I light the violator up, pull him to the side of the road. And before I even unbuckle my seatbelt, there's a badge hanging out of the window of the violating vehicle. It used to drive me absolutely <laughs> nuts because they've already made an assumption that I'm going to let them walk simply because they also carry a badge and they've made certain um, prejudicial judgments about me that I don't like. So just, so that's one of the warnings for, for common ground. Um, And, and the other warning for common ground is um, again, if you rely heavily on it and it's not there, what are you left with? If that's your go-to move and there is no common ground, 
what are you left with? You're left with either nothing or trying to lie about common ground on some level. And so I'm not telling you not to use it. Just be judicious and make sure that you're genuine and it's a part of the overall approach to tactical empathy. It's not everything that you're relying on. Marcella, did you want to add anything to common ground? Um, no, as an assertive, I get frustrated with common ground when I'm really busy because you can like newer agents will call and start with common ground. And then if I'm not sure if anybody else has dealt with this, but you'll have a great conversation during the the beginning in the beginning of the transaction. And then that agent may not be as seasoned and the, the interaction turns into there's, they don't have common ground anymore and they don't have the experience. And so there's not a lot of um, ability to, to deal with the difficult processes that are coming forward in the transaction. So just be careful with common ground because I think seasoned agents want to work with other agents who know how to negotiate and deal with difficult conversations. Yeah. And do we, go ahead. Thanks, Derek. Uh, what do we do when people are trying to do it to us? You know, once I went to buy a, uh, a little portable stereo at the um, Best Buy, you know, those, one of those electronic shops. And the guy said, hey, you're from England. You got English accent. I go, yeah. And I was in a hurry. I had to buy it and get back to work. Oh, I went to England. And probably all he did was go through Heathrow Airport, you know, while he's the way he talked. Because I didn't see anything. Yeah. yeah. So how do you stop someone and say, hey, buddy, it doesn't work on me? Well, I don't want to say that. I don't no, want to get into that. I don't want him to waste my time. Well, here, in, in the environment that you're just talking about there, he's not trying. There's no next step after that. This is a one-off transaction. So this one is, yeah, yeah. yeah, there's no next step with that. And so in, in a best buy type of situation, I don't get out of shape because I know he's not, you know, I know he's not going to try to sell me that, you know, that $50 portable stereo for 75. And then we're going to get back, get into a haggle back and forth. I know he's not trying to get over on me. He's probably, he may be just, you know, small but talking. I even or, once an internet company wanted me to advertise on uh -huh. Facebook, he's doing the same thing, which would have been more of a long-term and we didn't talk about pricing yet. And he went on the line and zoom and, and started this small talk. And I'm thinking, I'm busy so, you know, in my mind. So your, your subconscious is going to tell you, is it genuine or is he trying to make, is he making assumptions about what our relationship is going to look like in the near and distant future? And so you want to probe that just a little bit, because again, not everybody is doing it maliciously. Not everybody is doing it to try to get over on you, but if your if your spider spider senses start tingling, then you need to probe it a little bit more to try to find out something more about where they're going with this, where what their integrity is. Do do your core values um, yeah. line up? If it's nothing more um, than hitting them with, it sounds like since the both your son and my son play soccer, our relationship should go along just as swimmingly. Well, what, what occurred to me in this one is that he's not a natural salesperson. 
And, uh, but he's following some kind of methodology, like, you know, Mr. ABC sales book. I could just right. tell. So, right. so in, in a sense, he was getting himself in that. But once they start saying, oh, you got children? How old? I'm thinking, what? You know, but you could tell with a methodology. That's my thing. You know, methodology of five-step sales process that he, yeah. his boss taught him. Yeah, he's, he's checking boxes yeah. on a script. Uh, but it, if we're being honest, who does that sound like? Checking boxes on a script that we're going down. Who does that sound like? Sounds like sounds like all of us, which goes back to my earlier point. What are we doing to separate ourselves from the pack? Mm. What is Marcella doing to separate her? 1.5 million in, in the, and I know that's not large. I know there are other areas of country that have a, a larger concentration of agents. But ask yourself, what is what do you think Marcella is doing to separate herself from 1.5 million other people in the DMV? What are you doing to separate yourself? Let's go with Dean first. Dean, uh, talk to me about your experience with dealing with cutthroat procurement negotiators. It's you know can be very clinical. Um, they want to get the best deal possible. Uh, I do a lot of work with uh, local government, so they can be really tight on trying to get the best price possible, the best terms. And they think the best way of doing that is to be strong and brutal about it. It raises a question for me, actually, which I was going to throw in earlier, which is, do you use priming as well when you're dealing with a cutthroat? Because I found that to be quite powerful as well. Uh, and, and so um, for the benefit of everybody else, because I, I know priming as a technique. Are, are you in the UK? Yes. I know priming as a technique is, is huge in the UK. So share with the rest of the group what you mean by priming, and then we'll talk about its efficacy. Sure, yeah. So one of the things I've been playing with a lot in recent years is you're starting to prime the individual for the behaviors that you want them to display. So I might start a conversation by saying, you know, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. So I'm dropping in the words of, of generosity. But I, I'm also bringing in things like um, positive association or negative dissociation. So if I think about a cutthroat who wants to be seen as strong and powerful, I may negatively dissociate some of the, the weaker behaviors. So I might say to him, you know, it's it's rare to meet somebody who's who's so strong and powerful at negotiation. I meet so many weak negotiators that they tend to be really unsuccessful because they don't seem to be able to connect with the person in front of them. So yeah. I'm, prime, I'm priming for connection and openness and dropping a lot of those things in. So I wondered if that was something you've you've used as well. Um, in In the hostage world, priming is done often. You know, for example, you know, it's it, it's clear to us you're not ready to come out now. When you are, let's talk about what that's going to look like. Yeah. Now, Marcella did a, a fantastic job of priming this one guy that she dealt with on her first job um, where she would take him back to the vision. What's it going to look like when you come downstairs? What's it going to look like when you actually put that gun down? What's it going to look like when you're out? and walking the beach that you so desperately want to get back to. She did a lot of that, that priming. So, but what are you really doing when you're priming like that? What, what, what's, how does that dovetail with what we talk about at Black Swan? 
it dovetails because you're just the priming is is another skill by which you are demonstrating tactical empathy. It's another way that you are deferring to the other side. It's another way to demonstrate you're subordinating yourself to the other side. When you say something like it's rare to meet a negotiator as strong as you, what are you doing? Releasing chemicals. <laughs> yeah. You're giving them hits of dopamine. They're like, yeah, that's right. That's right. And they go about telling you how they cleaned the clock of the last person that they were in the room with. And that's providing you vital information of what you need to either expound on or avoid during your conversation. So I like the idea of priming and I wanted you to, 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 to actually lay it out for the rest of the group because priming is just another tool for tactical empathy. That's all it is. Mm. And would you then follow that up with the behaviors you want them to display more of like openness and connection? I think that that's going to be self-evident because of your openness and your, and your drive for connection, because it's all under that tactical empathy umbrella, the, 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 the rule of reciprocity holds true. So I don't necessarily need to, to voice it. I'm going to demonstrate it. And that, that carries a lot more weight than you trying to, to plant it, so to speak. 